Rich, good morning. Um, thank you very much for taking the time for being on the uh, podcast interview. Uh, just to give people a bit of uh, background, uh, you did a post on Facebook with regards to fight or flight uh, kind of reaction or response uh, that people are, uh, you could say, exposed to on, a, uh, on either emergency situation, but also on a daily basis. Uh, I've got a mm -hmm. really strong interest in it because of how it actually affects uh, thinking and brain processes. Yeah. So I wanted to actually explore your experience with actually training the fight-or-flight response, but also just to provide people with a bit of background of how the, you could say, the physical uh, processes work within the body. And then I'd like to explore how your fight-or-flight training actually conditions that your behavior to actually manage that. So to give yeah. people a, okay. bit of, a bit of background... Um, can you tell us a bit your background and also what you what you do at the moment? Okay, yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks for having us on the on the podcast. So my background is um, I've been a, in the military uh, for twenty one years. Um, I've been a pilot throughout that that time, so a, both a helicopter pilot and a fast jet pilot. Firstly, starting out in what was known as the commando helicopter role. So that was a a role that was to transport, um, you know what are called tier one troops or potential special forces troops to the front line of combat now when i finished training i that was in 2003 so i came out of training and went immediately to iraq which was the the declaration of a war which uh, against iraq which was uh, april 2003 so went straight into that era of of kind of war fighting shall we say and that lasted a number of years so i was a helicopter pilot then i flew search and rescue um helicopters off the west coast of scotland following five years on the front line with commander helicopter force search and rescue off the off the west coast of um scotland you never knew what you were going to see day in day out every situation was genuinely different and i did that through until 2009 at which point i moved from helicopter flying into fast jet flying um, and i flew uh, jets for the royal air force from 2009 until effectively my retirement this year so my entire um, should we say adult life, my career following university, what has been in the military uh, and very drilled in, in that disciplined um, disciplined training, which we're and even more disciplined because it was flying training. Mm. Following that, or coupled alongside of that throughout, I've been uh, involved in the property industry, uh, involved in um, developing properties from uh, single units or single houses all the way up to blocks of flats, the largest being a block of 16 flats, which has been developed and built. Uh, so I've done that couple, ran alongside my military career. And now as I leave and transition outside of the military, I'll be doing that full time now. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've done quite a lot on the, shall we say, on the edge of human performance. Um, I've done a lot of sports, which are classed as on the edge of human performance as well, um, really. And because I was quite interested about as well about how my body would react, um, having seen a number of situations. So that's kind of my background, my history, um, career-wise. Um, and really, I'd like we'll, we'll see where it, see where it goes now, and how, yeah, see if I'm still, um, shall we say, challenged in the same way I have been for the past twenty-one years mm. in the military. Okay. Mm. Now the topic of fight or flight, um, mm. I'll. I'll provide some uh, background because you also mentioned something else which I'm quite interested in, which is high performance. I don't know if you've read uh, The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. That's, 
No, I haven't, no. Fantastic book. Really, really good book. He's done a follow-up called, uh, what's it, Stealing Fire? Yeah. But it's also about high performance and how the brain functions and that. And there's a lot of research in, in high performance to actually get to that, you could say, flow state, which people call it. So it's a lot of people are familiar with the term uh, being in the zone. And I think a lot of pilots yes. in high-stress uh, situations will actually get into that situation because it triggers a number of flow conditions, which means high-stress conditions, very challenging, requiring a lot of focus and being really present uh, in, in that period of time. You can't be focusing on you know, a bunch of other stuff. You've got to be really present when you do 100%. it. Yeah, yeah. So it, it activates a bunch of brain processes, especially high-performance brain processes. So I don't want to dive into that as yet because that's another in-depth conversation. Yeah. The main thing I want to talk about is a fight or flight. Now, the fight or flight uh, response works on the amygdala, which you're very much aware of. And it basically what it does is the brain processes information in two ways. Uh, when you do it on your normal cognitive way, which is your analytical thinking, you use the front part of your brain. When you get into an emergency situation, it basically bypasses the front part of the brain and actually directly goes to your amygdala, which deals with your fear responses. Okay. And those yeah, fear yeah. responses are the other things which it triggers, which is increased heart rate, faster breathing. It triggers a bunch of hormonal um, processes known as the HPA axis, which is even more in-depth, which I won't go into. But that whole process then also um, speeds up your physiological response to basi basically deal with a, uh, a fear or a danger scenario. Yeah. Which is why fight or flight tends to work a lot on visual um, responses or any kind of audio recognition which could trigger a, um, a warning scenario. Some warning scenario. Sometimes the warning scenarios can be anything from a previous experience, which was bad. Let's say a fire or something like that. You're very conditioned to that, or something that people will recognize is a rattlesnake sound because it's very yeah. recognizable. That's immediately a danger signal, which then triggers a flight or fight response because the first thing yeah. you do is then you start looking for the danger. And then yeah. your, your, your whole physiological response goes according to that. Now, that whole process um, works because it's linked to your, uh, your heart, your lungs, and your, your uh, digestive system through something called the vagus nerve. Now, yeah. the vagus nerve runs, uh, uh, runs down uh, and connects to all of these organs. But the other thing that it does is that it also feeds into your um, into your facial mu uh, muscles mm -hmm. because it's also used as a social nerve for responding and reacting to people, and then your physiological reactions respond accordingly. Yeah. Um, again, that's something more in depth, uh, which mm -hmm. is another part of it. But the main thing that that, that it works with is that uh, your physiological responses. Um, are triggered by the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve because it links into the heart the lungs and the, and the digestion uh, and all of the other organs it actually sig uh, it gets feedback from those organs but it also triggers a bunch of uh, hormonal reactions because of 
something that happens when you're in a dangerous situation, which yeah. is why when you get a dangerous situation, it's, it's almost immediately that you start reacting to it because of the, the cortisol gets uh, dumped into your, your system, your adrenaline gets pumped up into your system, and your, um, your, your, all your physiological responses then react to that. So your body then starts looking for energy, which is glycogen and emergency energy stores to provide you with that energy to deal with it with a dangerous yeah. scenario. So that's a bit of the, the background on how um, the physiological responses work. Now, the, the only way that you can actually counter some of the fight or flight responses where you can calm it down is through breathing um, and controlling your breathing. That's the only way that you can actually control it or by changing your awareness a bit. But if you're yeah. in a really highly emotional situation, it's very difficult to override emotional uh, scenarios when you're in a situation and you're not used to it. Now, your comment is what I'm really interested in is how did you uh, develop that, you could say, response to override or control the fight or flight reaction and, you know, that physiological response? What was the training that you went through to be able to manage that situation? Yeah. So I think I, I, I don't necessarily think it can be can be nailed down as such and i think mm -hmm. it's just the, the the collective piece so throughout flying training throughout any of those um training scenarios so again when we're talking i'll refer again to high performance troops so i think you know of the the with with the military kind of the special forces tier you've also got the aviation tier as well where you are operating at potentially your the, the performance of either yourself or the equipment that you've got. Mm -hmm. So we would operate flying wise at the absolute uh, limit of that aircraft. So what, what we do is we would drill um, scenarios. So any emergency scenarios are drilled. And when I say they're drilled, they are relentlessly drilled day in, day out throughout training. Training being, you know, anywhere from certainly flying training for me was six years long. Um, and some of the other, you know, that's probably the longest training pipeline. Some of the other kind of high performance people in the military are, are slightly less, but looking at myself, six years long. And you've, you have this scenario where you are drilled day in, day out, emergency situations. What are you going to do in this scenario? What are you going to do in that scenario? So every time you fly, the person sat next to you, the instructor, while you're training, will be simulating um, a, a scenario. That's live kind of scenarios you also do it in the simulator mm -hmm. and it's that relentless drilling day in day out so then um i remember coming out of training and immediately effectively as i say going to to iraq for the war in iraq and there was zero change for me i literally and i remember having a mental thought actually the only difference here is it's 20 degrees hotter and everything is sandy but with regards to flying day in day out we everything seemed so familiar mm. so the scenarios where we were going into kind of dangerous landing sites where we were being shot at where things were happening that five months earlier was simulated being simulated and now were being real my mental picture was exactly the same and it was down to that drilling day in day out and it was almost as if it conditions our brains or it conditions your brain yeah. or that response to enable you to immediately know what your reaction will be so i was never waiting for a scenario then seeing how i would react i knew when that scenario happened exactly how i would react 
because I'd done it a thousand times before. And I guess it comes down to, you know, a lot of people say like the 10,000 hour piece, you know, you become an, a master when you've done something 10,000 hours, you've done something that many times. And that's just the repetition. And I do believe that repetitive nature of simulating those high stress scenarios means that when that high stress scenario happens for real, you are desensitized to it. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting insight into it because I think the whole aspect of where you were talking about where you went from your training scenario, which was yeah. simulated and everything else, you could say you were... There's two things to it. One is a conditioned response, yeah. and you become familiar with a conditioned response, yeah. which meant that you were not unfamiliar with it, and you weren't looking for a solution to the problem. Because you yes. already were trained in how to manage the situation, all you had yeah. to do was then fit in whichever That's aspect it. of the training to actually get it uh, get it solved. And I, and I think I think where that falls back is the fact the, the the actual trained response, as you say, you are simply putting that piece of the jigsaw into the, the actual scenario that's being presented in that time but what i feel it does do is it allows when you're talking about your heart response and your breathing response your uh it allows my heart rate my breathing would obviously it would change subtly but mm. certainly not enough to change your reaction because yes you simulate no matter how well you simulate it's still never the same as a real thing no uh, but what it allows you to do is immediately your heart rate doesn't change the same as it would had it not been simulated and your breathing doesn't speed up. Yeah. And I've certainly found that when I've done uh, certain high-risk sports, shall we say, there is a, your heart rate will, I've always found my, my heart rate, my breathing will increase when you are approaching that moment of fear. So I did a lot of skydiving, you know, mm. and I still do now, where your heart rate and your breathing will increase, but then there is a a mental switch of, I am familiar with this picture. I'm familiar with the environment. I'm familiar with what I'm going to do. And then I can immediately take control of my own breathing, my own heart rate, and then it's gone. Yeah. That, 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 that I've then, I've taken control of that situation and I know exactly then what I would be doing. And I, I very, very much believe that comes from training. Mm. If I think back to kind of day one in training, when we were having scenarios thrown at us, I would freeze. Mm. So a scenario, I'd be putting a high pressure simulated situation. My fight or flight reflex would, would freeze and I would know, not know what to do at all. And I would sit and it wasn't because I didn't know what to do. It's because my body wouldn't allow me to do it. Now that's an interesting point. Um, while I was doing a lot of research into uh, the vagus nerve, I came across a, a researcher called Stephen Porges, and he's got a theory called the polyvagal theory, which is really interesting because everything that you've so far said fits into his, you could say, framework. Okay. And what he said is that you've got three stages of, you could say, the way that the body functions. The yeah. first one is your, you could say, fight or flight, where you start having the stress responses and you react to that. Then what you do is that you go to a second stage where you become you go into a lot more, you could say, stressed, uh, and you become a lot more withdrawn to protect yeah. yourself. Your body will get into almost a, a position where, where, it, where it tries to deal with a scenario in, a, in an emergency scenario. So you start reacting uh, yeah. kind of out of sorts. And, so, and then you've got the third stage, which is almost the immobilization stage, where yeah. you don't know what to do, 
your body is completely is like i don't know how to deal with it so the only way that it deals with it is literally shuts down to protect yourself because then what happens is if you do nothing you'll be safe for now until something passes and then you start reacting or then you start almost like waking up and saying okay this is how i deal with it and that fits into what you said quite well because it's almost like you've gone through stages where it's like fight or flight okay i need to deal with it second stage i don't know how to deal with it so your stress responses kick in yeah and then it gets to a point where you don't know what to do so the body is like i'm gonna do nothing and it's because of the way that it works it completely immobilizes your physiological responses and you can't do a thing which is why yeah. a lot of people say oh, i was i don't know why i couldn't move it's not because yeah. they couldn't move or they're not capable or there's any kind of mental failure with them it's just the body's physiological response is that i'm going to keep you safe and the only way that i know I can keep you safe is by you not moving it'll override everything that you want to do until it gets to a point where it feels it's safe for you to uh, react and then it'll yeah. almost let go and I say that's how I've always known it. I've always known it in three stages, the fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. Do you know where a lot of people refer to it, the fight or flight reflex, where for me, there's always, I've always understood it as a freeze element as well. Mm. So it is a case of that exactly as you say, your body's such a high stress situation, doesn't know what you could do. And it's not that you don't know what to do. It's you physically can't do it. Yeah. And that's where the, training kicks in quite effectively because what you do over a period of time is that you're conditioning your body to the situation and you condition conditioning your mental processes on how to deal with it so instead of triggering a lot of these uh, these these fear uh, fight or flight and uh, freeze responses you actually get to a point where it's like i am familiar with this situation which means you can start dealing with it and the other thing that it it does is that your range of coping mechanisms increases because of the training and the scenarios that you put yourself through which yes. means that your capacity for dealing with high stress situations is wider because of you could say the scenarios that you put yourself through which is why training is so vitally important to give you that capacity to deal with it yeah i think something else as well we become uh, is is kind of the emotional side comes into it as well so yeah. when people say you know it is a lot of fear but also there's i think there's fear you know again when you look at different scenarios so people will for instance if it is a trauma situation with say themselves a child a loved one their reaction there maybe to freeze or to um to you know and i've seen that certainly when i when I flew search and rescue helicopters you'd see people's reaction differ on trauma situations to say loved ones um of what they would do and it was quite an interesting thing to see how people would behave and the majority of it was freeze because mm-hmm. they they saw somebody that they loved and cared for in pain have an accident whatever and we would turn up and would say have you kept them warm have you done this and they said no 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 i just can't move i don't know what to do i don't know what to touch because they're they're the emotions are almost have kicked in as well mm-hmm. so the emotional side is gone and coupled with the freeze element um they can do nothing and i think being able to draw so i feel i a lot of people you know i i kind of say certainly in the, the job i'm doing now you've got to remove emotions from a lot of decisions that you make um, and the ability to do that again just comes from for me I, be, I put it down to kind of training in that drilling i am able to look at a scenario and have no emotion whatsoever to that scenario 
and know exactly how my body will react. But there's no emotional tie, there's no emotional attachment to that whatsoever, even if it is a, a very close relative, a family member. And I've had those scenarios, but I'm able to do that. But I guess that's 20 years of military drilling. Mm. Yeah. But I think yeah, that's a, that, that's a, a conditioned response because yeah. you've got to override your, your yes. natural tendency. Um, so the interesting question with that regard is at what point did you actually get to that and how did you start realizing that you could actually reduce the emotional impact on your decision making? So um, as part of, you do a lot of, um, what's called resistance to interrogation training whenever you will deploy into a, a frontline role. So certain certain elements of the military receive resistance to interrogation training mm -hmm. where you effectively are interrogated for a period of time. You are, it's called the conditioning phase. So you are conditioned initially. So for me, it was 10 days with the conditioning where you are on an exercise, on a military exercise, you're, you're conditioned. You have minimal sleep, minimal food, and you are what's called on the run. So your body is drained and depleted. And what happens there is the, the mind almost plays games on you. At the end of that period of exercise, you are simulated that you are caught and you are put through a, 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 an element of resistance to interrogation. Now, the first time you do that, your emotions take over. You have, because you are, your body's depleted, you are... Mm. And effectively, the way they do it is they'll teach you about it. They will then put you in the scenario and show you how your emotions take over. And your emotions take over completely. Now, following that, there's a period of time of recovery. You look back at kind of debriefs, video debriefs. You see the uh, the response your body's had. And I think it's being able to see how you responded to that situation in the cold light of day enables you to then change the response afterwards so we would then do a resistance to interrogation again and it would be a zero emotional and that for me was the ability was kind of the switch in my head that said i know exactly what i need to do in my own body to turn off my emotions in that scenario it's a very it's a very interesting thing yeah that's that ties into uh something else if you go from uh the the brain processes because what you've got over there is that you've got a feedback loop which yeah. is built into the training process. If you had to go through the process and you don't get any feedback, you don't know what you need to change. And yeah. that's, that's part of the, the vital learning uh, process is to have that feedback. And the other really important thing is if you can actually see your reactions, now what you're doing is that you self Assessing. Yeah, self-assessing and then yeah. changing your, you know, so I could immediately see, that, as you say, the feedback loop. And again, that's the feedback loop, something, again, we would do religiously with when it comes to flying is a feedback loop. You would always brief a scenario, carry out the scenario, debrief the scenario in order to offer feedback for the following. And that, that feed, so we talk quite a lot about feedback loops and um, with response to that, not mentally as such that you know physically that's the feedback loop that we are doing in order to then improve and change um, it's an interesting one when, when i say about like you know, the resistance to interrogation training that is another one where the fight flight or freeze reflex comes in so yes. it's, it's that even though it again simulated where you, you are going to be caught and that immediate you are about to be caught there's loud noises there's you know the amount of people some people will 
So I think of the people who were in my team, there was somebody who literally stood still, absolutely froze. I personally ran and I didn't know why. And another fella turned and started to fight the people who were. So it, it was a it was an absolute perfect illustration of the three responses that could have happened. And, yeah. and you know, we were a team of four people. And out of the four of us, two of us ran, one of us fought, one of us genuinely stood still. And it was an absolute, there was no thought went into that. It was an immediate, boom, I'm running. Yeah. Do you know, it was a, that was where my brain took me. The other fella turned around and he charged at the people who were about to catch. And it was, a, you know, that it was a, a, a direct illustration of the three stages as such. Yeah. There's... Uh... Coming back to your uh, flying training and your uh, debriefs and feedback loops, it also comes into a really interesting book that I read called The Checklist Manifesto. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you've read it yet. Not read that exact book, but very, very similar. I can imagine the sort of the, the, the things it talks about. Yeah. yeah. So basically what they've done is I used to work for um, – EasyJet. So I'm, I, I dealt with a lot of, you could say, the pilots and the crew. And one of the things that they obviously did is with their, with their daily checks is they, they always had their checklists that they worked through. And even with pilots, when they get, get ready to fly, they've got a checklist that they go through. And it's yeah. a very strict, um, you could say, blow-by-blow step that they've got to, got to go through before they actually take off they've got to they do all the the aircraft checks they do all the instrumental checks they do all the process checks to make sure that by the time that they're actually flying they're not ha they don't have that mental overload or or, or, or worry no. about something's not being done because they've already gone through the whole list and they verified everything is working which means it reduces your mental capacity of having to worry about something because you've gone through the process of checking it. Yes. And yes. that's that's a really interesting aspect of it, which which helps when you go through this, you almost say procedural checklist of having to deal with something, you remove a lot of the mental, you could say, feedback or the continual loop that you get stuck in sometimes when you're in a, in a negative situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, no, and absolutely, but very, very similar. But it's um, the, the drilling and the checklist. And I guess that when I refer to drilling, that's exactly it is. It is that checklist, you know, yeah. that, that learn verbatim the this response will follow that response. And we're very much trained that if at any point something will interrupt that checklist, you start again. Yeah. So you may be going to check one, two, three, four, at check four, something may interrupt you. You don't go back in at check four and carry on four, five, six, seven. You will start again one two three four five six seven so the checklist once you have started it you will complete it oh, if there interesting. is yeah so if there is an inter inter interruption you should really refer the experience kind of kicks in shall we say um experience kind of kicks in and uh, sometimes you can jump back in but certainly when you're trained you are trained if a checklist is started it will be finished if there is an interruption then you will start again until you finish it what's what's the reason for restarting from from the beginning it's more where you come back into the loop the or come back into the checklist so the, the the thinking is and again it's kind of comes back to there's a lot talk about cognitive failure yeah and we are say what you see rather than and again it's when you do checklists aviation wise it may be switch on this switch on that switch off, this switch off, you know, there may be the sequences. And the worry is if you step out midway, 
you may miss the step that you've, for instance, say you step out of check number four. Have you done check number four or did, is that when the interruption happened, but you haven't yet done check four? Okay. Did you finish check four and you go, do you know, so it's, it's to ensure that the, what, the, where the interruption happened, that check has been done. Because the worry is, say you do one, two, three, interruption happens at four, but you haven't done four yet. You step out, you come back in and you think, right, I got interrupted at check four. I'm going to go back in at check five, six, seven, eight. But four was never done. And so that's it, where potential and error can creep in and something exactly. fatal can happen. And we have a lot of cognitive failures where quite often when you do them repetitive, you will say the right response, but you haven't looked at what the actual um, thing is. So, for instance, our checklist may be um, this switch on, on, that switch on, that one off, that one on. And you will, when you do a checklist, you you actually verbalize it. So you will say on, on, do. Yeah. And, but a lot of them... Uh, we find that you, the the switches, for instance, are never on or off. But you're seeing what you expect, yeah. But you're never checking. So that comes down to yeah. so it's, expectation it, it instead of verification, and those can cause problems. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Now that was that's really interesting, Rich. Yeah. I I know you've got a another appointments uh, that you've got to uh, go to today but thank you very much for for the in interview it was really interesting and i'd love to have you on again sometime absolutely lance i'm sorry it, it dragged on this presentation was thrown at me yesterday and i thought you know what that's i could probably juggle them both um but hopefully i've still given a, a enough value there in the in the half hour we've had and i'm more than happy to come on again if you want to want to expand the chat by all means just just let me know and let's organize something else that sounds good excellent have a good day. Happened to you too. Bye-bye now. Take care.